The following message is from Hope Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. More information about Hope Church can be found at hopechurchonline.com. Relationships, yes. If it's a serious relationship, I guess to a point where you're just always stressing about something and it's like, just, you know? But then they're good, but then you feel the stress and it's, it's a cycle. And women, I don't know. If I knew that, I'd understand it. Um, will I ever get married? Honestly. Knowing when to, you know, switch gears and, you know, put the mom hat on, take it off, put the wife hat on, take it off, you know, just, again, multitasking. What stresses me out the most in life? My children. My wife. <laughs> you got messed up family? I got really messed up family, yeah. Women. I live here, my family's all back east, so for me it's very stressful not having any family members other than my significant other nearby. And, you know, sometimes you can fight amongst yourselves because it's just you two against the whole world, more or less. Family. <laughs> the demands of family. Family have all of these different expectations, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it's unrealistic, so they have family. At Hope, there's something that we say all the time. If you have been around Hope for any length of time at all, you've heard us articulate this statement. We say that following Jesus is all about, say it out loud, relationships. Following Jesus is all about relationships, and we say that all the time. But there's another you could add on to that statement phrase that is also true that we don't say quite as often. And here's the rest of it. And relationships can be stressful, right? Following Jesus is all about relationships, but the reality is relationships can be stressful. As a matter of fact, the American Psychological Association in their annual stress report identified that more than half, actually 54%, of adults in the United States say that their personal relationships are a significant source of stress in their lives. So if that statistic is true in our congregation this morning, half of you sitting in this room are saying, yep, when I think about stress in my life, it is driven by the relationships that are in my life. Now, don't say amen. They might be sitting with you this morning, all right? So we don't want to alienate anybody right out of the gate. But for the last three weekends, this weekend being the fourth, we have been unpacking a series we've simply entitled Stressed. How do you enjoy life and not just endure it. We've been in between book studies all summer. We've been teaching through the book of Psalms. Next weekend, I'm very excited to launch into the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We're going to be walking verse by verse through that wonderful book. In the middle of those two book studies, we decided to look at this issue of stress that affects so many people, specifically in the United States. And if you've not been here for these four weekends, you can go on our website, hopechurchonline.com, we have all of the series that we've done so far on the website already. We've got a lot of additional resources for you to kind of dig through and dig deeper in so that you can grow in this particular area. But what we've tried to do is look at what the Bible has to say about some of the big things in our lives 
that cause stress. And we began by giving you a definition of stress. And I want to put that definition back up on the screen. And I want to read it together one last time this weekend. Here's what stress is. Let's read it together. One, two, three. Fearful concern experienced when life's demands seem greater than my ability to meet them. That's really what stress is as we've been talking about it. I look at a situation in my life, and we've dealt with three big areas in talking about stress. As you study stress, there are really three areas that rise to the top that are stressors in people's lives. The area of schedule and how I manage my time. The area of budget, how I manage my finances. Or the area of relationships, how I interact with other people. Those three things are the dominant causes of stress. And if you take that definition and you look at it in light of those three areas, it's very normal even for Christians When it comes to money, time management, and relationships, it's normal for all of us to have some level of concern in those areas. It's normal for us to develop a burden about some of those things. But when it's healthy, that's exactly what it is. It's a burden. And a burden, what we do with that in a healthy way as Christians is we take that to the Lord. That burden, that situation, that circumstance that seems greater than my bandwidth personally to meet that need, I take that to the Lord and that situation and circumstance drives me to deeper fellowship with God. Now, when it's unhealthy, it leads to worry, anxiety, and stress. Rather than driving me to fellowship with the Lord... I begin to look internally at my schedule or my relationships or my finances and try to figure out how am I going to fix all of this? How am I going to meet this need? How am I going to handle this situation? And it becomes something that drives me to a lifestyle of stress. And the good news is that Jesus has something much greater for us. He said, I've come that you may have life and have it what? Abundantly or more abundantly. So Jesus offers us a different way. This weekend... We're going to deal with a third of those issues. We've already dealt with schedule. If you weren't here, you can find it online. We've already dealt with money management and personal finances. This weekend is relationships. And I want to give you two important realities when managing stressful relationships and unpack them. Here's the first one. There are times in a relationship when I need to change. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking. Pastor, I have been looking forward to this message and this series because I thought you were going to tell me how to fix them. Well, step one is looking at me. Because a lot of the stress that we have in relationships is stress that is there because we are not responding. We are not pursuing Christ in that relationship as we could. There's my, my favorite, one of my favorite books. I read it every year, and it really deals with this issue of relationships inside the body of Christ in particularly. But it's by a man named Roy Hessian, and it's called The Calvary Road. It's a little bitty thin paperback book. You can read it in an afternoon, but it, it, the content is so overwhelming. You don't want to read it in just one afternoon, but I read it every year, and It's deeply impacted my life through the years. I want to read you a section out of Roy Hessian's book, The Calvary Road. Look at it on the screen. He said, We shall have to see that the thing in us that reacts so sharply 
to another's selfishness and pride is simply our own selfishness and pride, which we are unwilling to sacrifice. I love this. We shall have to accept another's ways and doings as God's will for us and meekly bend the neck to all of God's providences. That does not mean that we must accept another's selfishness as God's will for them. Far from it. But only as God's will for us. Here's what he's saying. Often, God has some difficult people in my life. Because there's some stuff that God couldn't do in me. Without those people. It's not really about them at all. It's about what God desires to do in me. And it's that relationship in my life. That surfaces that stuff in me. That Jesus wants me to see. And wants me to deal with. So often it's not about them. It's all about me. And so if we're really going to deal. With this issue of stressful relationships. It begins. By looking on the inside. What does God want to do in me? Again, he's not saying there that if they're acting out of bounds, if they're breaking, that that's God's will for them. But here's what he is saying. The way they're acting may not be God's will for them, but it's, it's God's will for me. And there's some stuff that God wants to use in that relationship to surface some stuff in me to produce more Christ-likeness in me. Now, Paul is addressing this very issue in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible... Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be reading here in the book of Ephesians. Now, this book is really a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a city called Ephesus. And here's what you need to know about this church. It was a young church. We today are on our 13th birthday. This church Paul's writing to, six years old. He had planted it six years earlier. So everybody in this church have been Christians less than six years. Some of them have only been Christians for weeks and months because it was the first time the gospel had ever gone to their city. So this is a church of relatively young believers, new Christians, and Paul is writing to them to remind them that when Christ enters our lives, He changes the way we live. Did you hear that? When Jesus comes to live inside of us, it changes the way we live. The very first church that I pastored was in a small town. I was a young guy. I was 23 years old when I became the senior pastor of the first church that I'd ever pastored. And I'll never forget, I was so excited, you know, so full of vision and passion with all the things God was going to do in our church. And I'm walking down the hallway to my first, I've been on the job one week, my first week on the job. I'm having my first meeting with the leadership of the church, and they're all in this room, and a couple of the guys are walking with me, and they're leading me to this meeting, and we're walking up the hall, and they stop me about halfway down the hall, and they say, Pastor, we just want to give you a heads up that, and I'm not going to name him, but but so-and-so is going to be in this meeting. And I said, great, I've got some exciting things to share about what God, he said, well, 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 Pastor, you just need to know He's going to be against everything that you say. I said, well, he doesn't even know what I'm going to say yet. What do you mean he's going to? He said, well, it doesn't matter. 
He's against everything anybody says. We, we believe he has the spiritual gift of being against things. That's what his gift is. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, and he's in leadership? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, how long has he been in our church? Well, about 25 years. Now, here's what bothered me. That that didn't bother them. That it's become normal in American Christianity for somebody to profess out of their mouth, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and there never be any. Listen, I'm not saying we all go from Saul to Paul, from murdering Christians to preaching the gospel to unreached people. I'm not saying that we all see some radical momentary life change. But here's what I am saying. When Jesus Christ comes to live inside of a human being, it changes the way we live. It changes us from the inside out. And here's the reality. One of the primary ways it changes us is how we relate with other people. It should radically change our relationships. I should be able to look back in my life a month, six months, a year, five years, and see that the way I relate to people today is not the way I used to relate to people. I'm in a process of being changed. Now, that's what Paul, Paul is writing to these young Christians who some of them are still living out of the old resources. They're having some issues in the church, a lot of ego, a lot of flesh, a lot of anger, a lot of stuff's going on, a lot of stress in the relationships that Paul's writing to here. And he's reminding them, Christ in you can change you. Let me show it to you. Start in verse 17. I'm going to read some background here, and then we'll get into where we're going to really focus in verse 25. But look what he says. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile here, it's a word for the non-believer. He says, let me remind you, that's not who you are anymore. I'm writing to you to tell you, to remind you, you don't live like that. And, and walk in the futility of their mind. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to every sensu- sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But look what he says in verse 20. But, but you didn't learn Christ in this way. This isn't who Jesus is. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. Here's what he's saying there. Listen, if you're looking at your life and you're not seeing any life change to your relationship with Jesus, you need to examine to see if you heard about the right Jesus. If it's just status quo, I'm a Christian, but my life doesn't change. Nothing in my life's different. He says, that's not the Christ we preach to you. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now I want to pick up in verse 25 because here he gets real practical. Therefore, I've told you, anytime you see the word therefore, look, see what it's what? Therefore, right? Because the word therefore is a big transition. Here's what he just said. Listen, because of Christ, you're different. Because of Christ, the way you relate to people is different. Christ in you is changing you. Now he's going to give some practical application as to what it looks like. Look at it. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. 
Each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with anyone who has need. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were called or sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ has forgiven you. So that's where we want to start. God, when I think about this relationship that's stressing me out. God, when I think about this relationship that's weighing on me, that's a burden. Here's question number one. Lord, what do you want to do in me? So what I want to give you is I want to give you five questions. This is not an exhaustive list, but five questions out of these verses that are a starting point to deal with stress when it comes to relationships. Here's question number one. Am I being honest in this relationship? Is this relationship rooted in honesty? Look what Paul begins with. He says in verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. The word falsehood is a word, it's a general word for lying or dishonesty. Sometimes there's a lack of honesty because we say things that aren't true. Sometimes we lie by what we don't say. But there are a lot of relationships that are cloaked in dishonesty. There's not a transparency. And Paul says here, lay aside falsehood, get rid of that, and speak the truth. The word speak here is in the present tense. It's describing an ongoing, continuous action. Here's what Paul's saying. If we were translating it today, here's what Paul would say. Paul would say, in relationships, you've got to keep it real all the time. Are you keeping it real in your relationships? Is there an honesty and a transparency? Or are you allowing a relationship to constantly be a source of stress in your life because you are avoiding honesty in this relationship? I'll give you an example. All relationships can cause stress. Any of them can. Even marriage, right? If we're not careful, marriage can be a source of stress. My wife was in the first service, and we talked about this this week because I knew I was going to be teaching this principle, and I wanted us to have a conversation around it just so we could wrap our heads around it even more and understand how we've dealt with some of these things in our marriage. And when it comes to stress inside the context of marriage, there are, I know you're going to find this incredibly hard to believe, but there are things that I do that stress my wife out. I know, I know, that is incredibly shocking to many of you. But there are things that I do that stress my wife out. There are things my wife does that stresses me out. And we talked about some of those again this week, laughing about it and talking about it. And one of the things we talked about this week is one of the things that stresses me out the most, and this is probably would be at the top of my list if we were having this conversation, is I'm the type of person, if you're to be somewhere, you're to be there 15 minutes before it starts to consider it on time, right? Now, now I know, I know half the room... Half the room just went, I'm so glad he said that. And half the room just went, oh, he's one of those, right? I, I know, I know, I know. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is, okay? It's, it, for me, I get so stressed out about that. So I said, Christy, if you are going to tell me, what, what would be at the top of your list? She said, the fact that you get so stressed out over me being late. 
So this morning, she's here at the 9 o'clock service. I slip out, and they'd already started the first song. She's on the front row. She leaned over and said, I'm on time. <laughs> Thanks, babe. I really appreciate that. But here's the point. Because those are stressors in our relationship, it's important that we're honest about those. Doesn't mean I'm right and she's wrong. She's right and I'm wrong. But it does mean in a relationship, you have to keep it real. You have to be honest about those things that create stress. And then inside the relationship, it's on us individually to do everything we can through the power of the Holy Spirit to avoid those things. It's not right in the relationship for there to be these hidden landmines that somebody is stepping on that's blowing up and causing you stress when they don't know where the landmines are. If there's not real honesty and transparency in the relationship, we're never going to remove the stress out of that relationship. Does that make sense? If it makes sense, say amen. Let me give you a second question. Here's the second one. Am I harboring anger about things that have happened in the relationship in the past? Again, if we're going to remove stress we got to start with me. How do I need to change? Question number one, am I being honest? Am I being real? Number two, am I harboring anger about something that's happened in the past? Look at verse 26. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It almost sounds schizophrenic, right? I mean, here, be angry, don't be angry in the same verse. But it's because he's talking about two different things here. The first word, angry, is a different word than the second word, anger, in the Greek language. The first word is a word that can be good or bad. It's not necessarily good or bad. It can be either. Anger is not necessarily sinful when it is what some would call righteous indignation. It's, it's born of the Holy Spirit of God, and it's justifiable in, in, in the teaching of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, it even said in the Bible, using this word, that Jesus did this. Jesus got angry at times. So it's not necessarily sinful to be angry, but then he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's a word that describes a deep-seated resentment over something that was done to me. It's a type of anger that doesn't let go. And when I live with this kind of anger in relationships, I only begin to see the person through that perspective And ultimately, even the sight of them, they don't have to do anything. Just seeing them, there's anxiety and stress that begins to well up in my heart. Is there someone who even the sight of them, don't don't answer out loud. (laughs) Even the sight of them stresses you out. Listen. Listen. If even the sight of them stresses you out, you need to understand that's not about them. That's about you. You're hanging on to something from the past that in Christ needs to be dealt with and moved on. Am I harboring something? And look at what verse 27 said. He said, do not give the devil an opportunity. And talking about this holding on to anger, here's what he's saying. If I am holding on to stuff in the past in relationships, I am making way. That's the, that's the Greek uh, tense of this don't give an opportunity. I am making room for the enemy to have his way in my life if I'm living like that. If I'm hanging on to stuff, I'm giving him a place and saying, here you go. Here's a playground. Have your way in my life. 
I love what Roy Hessian said. Again, look at this quote. He said, God wants me to see that it was not the thing that the person did that matters, but my reaction to it. Let me give you a third question. Am I focused on what I can get from this relationship or on what I can give to this relationship? Am I stressed out because I got the wrong focus in the relationship? And look at the verse. He says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has a need. You say, what in the world does that have to do with relationships? Well, that has everything to do with relationships. The word share here is an extremely relational word. As a matter of fact, it's not the same word that is most normally translated share in the New Testament. I've talked to you before about this word share in the New Testament and how it's the Greek word koinonia. It means to partner in, share in the life of somebody else. That's not this word. This is a different word. It's a word that at its root means to give, but it's compounded with a preposition to create a new compound word. It means literally, if you just literally translate it, it means to give with. And the idea is I'm giving with the people that are in my life. That's why we call it sharing. I'm sharing with those around me. And he contrasts that, interestingly enough, with stealing. Why? Here's why. When you steal something, you believe that you are entitled to what somebody else has. They exist to meet my need. That's stealing. If you steal something... You believe I'm entitled to what they have, so I'm just going to take it. When you share, you believe others should be blessed by what you have. You exist to meet their need. Are you stressed out in a relationship because you're only focused on them not meeting your need? You see, sometimes we get so stressed out because of our expectation of what they're supposed to do for us, and when they don't meet that expectation, when they don't fulfill that responsibility that we think they owe us because they exist for us, right? Then we let it stress us out. But maybe, maybe God doesn't have them in your life for what they can do for you. But maybe God has them in your life because of what He desires to do through you and them. And if I understood that, that the relationship wasn't just about me, it might remove some of that stress. Let me give you a fourth one. Am I seizing every opportunity to speak grace into this relationship? Am I seizing every opportunity to speak grace into this relationship? Look what Paul says. He says, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that you will give grace to those who hear. In relationships, words are powerful. I'm going to say that again because I want you to get it. In relationships, words are powerful. As a matter of fact, the writer of Proverbs said, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I mean, it doesn't get any more severe and drastic than death and life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What I say, how I carry my words, 
That's why Paul here in writing about relationships deals with the issue of words. And he says three things, and I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, he says what we say is very important. He says, only speak that which is for edification. It means to build up somebody else. What Paul is saying here is that in relationships, everything I say should be a part of the process of building them up. If I'm evaluating my relationships and seeing this person or this relationship that stresses me out, how am I speaking into that relationship? What am I saying? What are the words that I'm using? Number two, when we say what we say is very important. Paul said, according to the need of the moment. It's possible to say the right thing at the wrong time. Amen? It's possible to say the right thing at the wrong time. I love what the writer of Proverbs said. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a... What's the next word? Timely word. It means it's on time. It's in the right moment. It's according to the need of the moment. Just because you may be right doesn't mean it's the right thing to say in that moment. Another proverb, he said, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in. What does he say? Right circumstances. So when we say what we say is important, here's the third aspect. How we say what we say when we say it's very important. How we say what we say when we say it's very important. Do you hear what he said? So that it will give grace to those who hear. It's possible to say the right thing at the right time, but say it in the wrong way. Especially if you're stressed out. He says we should say it in such a way that it gives grace. I can say the right thing. It can be the right time. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, it's not set in the right spirit. Look what it says in Proverbs. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise, listen to this, makes knowledge acceptable. Here's what that means. The way I say something can determine whether or not the one hearing it accepts what I have to say. So am I causing stress in relationships because of what I say or because of how I say it or because of when I say it? See, maybe it's not them. Maybe maybe it's me. Let me give you a fifth question. Am I dealing with this relationship in my strength or allowing Christ in me to live through me? Am I dealing with this relationship in my strength or allowing Christ in me to live through me? See what he said? Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Look at this. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Two very different lists there. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. What's that? Let me tell you what that is. That is a description of my response in the flesh towards other people. That's what that is. That's our flesh. On its best and worst day, that's our flesh. When we respond in our strength, out of our resources, to those situations, let me tell you what it looks like. Bitterness, anger, clamor, slander, wrath. That's what it looks like. 
But then he says, verse 32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. Where does that come from? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let me tell you what that is. That's a demonstration of Christ in me. And he says, let all this other be put away from you. And what he's really saying there is, in my own strength, I can't remove these things. But I can allow Christ in me to remove those things so that he may live his life through me. What's stressing me out in that relationship? Is it that I'm not allowing Christ in me to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, loving, gracious, The list goes on and on and on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's who he is. Look at one last quote by Roy Hessian. Look what he said. Every humiliation, everyone who tries and vexes us is God's way of breaking us so that there is yet a deeper channel in us for the life of Christ. We got stress in our relationships. Let me tell you where we start. There are times in the relationship when I need to change. And listen, don't even think. Don't even pray about this next step until you've done the first one. Until you, before God, get honest and let God, by His Spirit, examine your own heart. And I would even encourage you to do this. With some godly people that you look up to, get them to speak into your life about this issue because often emotions get in the way and we can't even see where we're the one missing it. But when I have completely exhausted this self-examination before God about where I am in the relationship and even sought counsel from godly influences to speak into my life about this relationship, there is a second step. Here it is. There are times in a relationship when the relationship needs to change. There are times in a relationship when the relationship needs to change. Now let me say it again. Don't start here. If you walk out of here today and you start here, you have missed what I have said to you today. And you've missed what the Word of God says about how to start in reconciling relationships. Don't start here. But once you've exhausted that first step, Sometimes the relationship has to change. And just in the moments we have left, let me give you a couple of statements about that. Number one, here's the first step in changing a relationship. And I call it stepping up. You step up. And by that, I mean you have to confront the relationship. If you've completely exhausted your personal walk with Jesus in the relationship, and you've even had others speak into that, and they say, you know what, I don't see anything else in your life then here's what you do. You confront the relationship. Look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Here's what that means. As a follower of Jesus, I'm to do everything in my power to pursue peace with other people. So this goes back to where we started. Am I being honest? Am I keeping it real? Once we've dealt with that in our own heart, now we may have to sit down with the individual or the person that I'm in the relationship with and say, hey, we need to talk. We need to have a conversation about this issue that's, that's straining our relationship, that's stressing me out, that's bringing conflict into our relationship. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, let me give you a place in Scripture where Jesus spelled it out very specifically. Turn over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. 
In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus is speaking about relationship issues, offenses, where somebody has sinned against you. Now, some people take this text of Scripture and they make it exclusively apply to the issue of church discipline, disciplining people that are in sin. And there is some application here, but you need to understand the primary context of this application of Scripture is speaking to relational brokenness between brothers and sisters in Christ and how to bring reconciliation. This is not about discipline. It's about reconciliation. Look what he says. Verse 15, if your brother sins, and he's there talking about if he sinned against you, Go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You know what you do first? You go to him in private. You have a conversation. And here's what he says. If you come together, here's what the Bible calls that, a win. You don't go talk about him. You don't go bring it up as a prayer request in your small group. You know what I'm talking about. You go to them. In, what does it say? Private. Why? Because you may just misunderstand. And one private meeting can fix all of that. And you've now not slandered their reputation in front of other people as a prayer request, right? So you go to them in private. You sit down. You have a conversation. If that doesn't work, what do you do next? Look what he says. Verse 16. But if he doesn't listen to you. Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything may be, every fact may be confirmed. What does that mean? You get two or three people who are siding with you so you can go and really get them? No. It's not what he says. Here's what he's saying. After you've both come together and looked at the situation, you're now still on opposite sides. You need some objective counsel to hear both of you to help determine where we're off track here. Who is out of line? This isn't, this isn't stacking my team for the meeting. This is bringing in some honest people that can sit down, look at the situation, and they just might say, hey, they're right and you're wrong. You're the one that hadn't seen this right. So we're bringing in some brothers and sisters in Christ to bring clarity to the reconciliation process. What if that doesn't work? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What does that mean? Well, now this is the point where you get spiritual leadership involved. Small group leader. Ministry team leader. You get them involved because now what's happened at this point, those that came and listened said, no, it's, it's right. This is a... It's a situation here, and now we've got to get spiritual leadership involved to help sit down and try to bring some clarity and hopefully repentance and reconciliation born out of that. What if they don't even listen to that? Look what it says. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, tax collector. What does that mean? It means Gentiles and tax collectors in this time when the Bible was written were, were two of the groups that they would associate with non-believers, non-Christians. And here's what he's saying. If you go through all this and there's still not reconciliation, you need to pray for them like they don't even know the Lord. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, pastor, that's great, but the person that's stressing me out is a coworker or a neighbor, and they're not even a Christian. Well, here's what I want you to understand. These principles still work. They work. 
anybody teaching real conflict resolution anywhere in the world are using these principles. They may not call it the Bible, but they're using these principles. You got a coworker you got an issue with, let me tell you what you do. You go to them in private. Out of respect, you sit down, you try to have a conversation. You try to get the issues on the table and you deal with it. You say, what if they don't listen? Get a couple of coworkers to come together and say, hey, can you help us resolve this? Maybe it's a sports team you're on and there's conflict on the team. What do you do? You go to them in private with your teammate. If that doesn't work, you get a couple other teammates and you sit down together and you try to bring some reconciliation to the situation. What if that doesn't work? You may have to get a supervisor or a coach involved. What if that doesn't work? Then all you can do is just pray for that person as a follower of Jesus for God to do something deep and lasting in their life through your relationship. Step one you got to confront the relationship. It's time to have a conversation. If you've exhausted everything in your heart, it's time to have a conversation. Now, before I give you the last two steps, I want to give you a clear word of counsel, and I want you to really pay attention right now. If you've tuned out at all, tune in right now. Hear me very clearly. If you have exhausted this first process. You've examined your own heart and now you've even gone through the process of confronting the relationship and having the conversation and you've brought counsel involved and you've got spiritual leadership involved and there's still no reconciliation. If this relationship is in your immediate family, meaning it's your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or your brother or your sister, If you're now at this point in the process and there's still issues, the next two steps that I'm about to give you, I don't want you to hear them. I want you to sit down with a spiritual leader and seek counsel about next steps. The two steps I'm about to give you are steps in general, talking about general relationships. But when you're talking about relationships inside the immediate family, husband-wife, parent-child, brother-sister, There's some other biblical principles that could apply, and every situation is unique. So you must sit down with a spiritual leader. I encourage you to go sit down with your small group leader. If that doesn't, after sitting down with your small group leader, there's not resolution. Sit down with somebody in our life center. Sit down with somebody, one of our pastors. Sit down with somebody who can bring some biblical counsel into the situation that you're in, okay? But don't hear these next two steps as your next two steps if it's a relationship in your immediate family. If you got that, say amen. Amen. Don't walk out of here and say, Pastor Vance said, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Hear me clearly. But if it's a general relationship and you've already examined your own heart and before God you feel like (laughs) having talked to others, you're right with God in the relationship. And you've now confronted the relationship and you've gone through these steps of reconciliation and there's still conflict, there's still stress in this relationship. Here's step number two. It's time for you to step back. By step back, I mean to establish boundaries for the relationship. You lead the relationship. You decide how often you spend time together and where you go. You must set boundaries on the relationships that influence your life. Now, again here, I would say it's important to seek counsel because emotional involvement always leads to unwise decision-making. Listen to me. I'm, I'm somebody that I believe after 25 years of walking with the Lord, being in ministry, 
I'm a good source of counsel. But listen, in my own life, when I'm emotionally engaged in a situation, my judgment gets blurry. It does for all of us. That's why it's important to get somebody that you love, that, that loves Jesus, that's in your small group, that's your small group leader that walks with you, to help you establish what those boundaries need to look like for that relationship. In, in emotion, don't, don't just set those yourself. Get some counsels to how to do that. But you set boundaries on that relationship. You stepped up, you've confronted it, didn't work, so now you're stepping back. You're beginning to build some boundaries. Here's third step. If all of that fails, it's time to step away. And by that, I mean it's time to remove the relationship. There are times when the right thing to do for this season is to remove that relationship from my life. If after confronting the relationship and establishing boundaries in the relationship, it's still a constant source of contention and stress, the wise thing to do is remove that relationship. But when you do that, remember this. Never give up on God's ability to change somebody. Removing the relationship is not writing off a person. Aren't you thankful you're not the person you used to be? Leave room for the grace of God to do a work of transformation in their life. And when that happens, you be the first one to come running to reconcile and and see healing and, and reconciliation take place. So, relationships can be stressful. There are times when I need to change. When I've exhausted that, there are times when the relationship needs to change. What does that look like? Sometimes step up, confront it. If it's in your immediate family, husband, wife, parent, child, brother, sister, and you've confronted the relationship and you've walked through all that with counsel, it's time to sit down with a spiritual leader and get some next steps counsel. But if it's not in your immediate family... Next step would be to step away, put some boundaries. And then third be to step or step away completely, remove that relationship entirely. For a season, trusting that God in His grace can work and redeem and reconcile that as He chooses. And that's how you deal with stress in relationships. If that makes sense, say amen. amen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and God, just bring real clarity to this issue in our lives. Lord, I know that all of us have relationships that can be and are sometimes stressful. And I pray that today you've given us wisdom from your word about how to navigate through that. In the stillness of this moment as you sit before the Lord, it's really appropriate that we talk about these issues because at the very core of the gospel is the message of reconciling relationships. You get that, right? You and I, because of our sin, our relationship with God was broken. We were separated from God, but God loved us so much that He gave His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. He rose again from the dead, and now you and I can be forgiven of our sin, and we can have a relationship with God, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus did. So it just makes sense that if the core of the gospel is about reconciling broken relationships, 
that one of the outworkings of the gospel in our lives is relationships being reconciled and made right. So this morning, we're going to close our service in a time of worship. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're going to invite you to respond today by giving your life to Christ. You say, how do I do that? Well, when we stand in just a moment, we're going to sing a song of worship. We have some pastors here at the front. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, but today you're ready to become a follower of Jesus or have a conversation with somebody about what that could look like, we're going to invite you to slip out from where you're sitting. Just come take one of these pastors by the hand and say, today, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God. That's all you have to do today. We'll show you. For others of you today, maybe as I've talked about this, there's a relationship right on the forefront of your mind. What do I do right now, Pastor, to start engaging in this? Let me tell you what to do right now. When we stand to sing in just a moment, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just start praying for that person by name. You just start praying for them. And let God change your heart about them as you pray. Listen, don't pray about them. Pray for them. Intercede on their behalf. Maybe you want to come today and we'll take these steps at the front, open them up like an old-fashioned altar. You can come and if you just want to be alone with God right here, you can come and kneel and just be alone with God about any burden that maybe is in your heart. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe it's something else. Or we have pastors that will be here at the front. We'd be honored to pray over you. If there's something that you want us to pray for specifically, you can come and while we're singing, while we're worshiping, we'd be honored to just pray for you for what God's doing in your life today. Lord, have your way in this time. Use it for your glory. Speak, Holy Spirit of God, right now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Hope Church. We would love to connect with you, so be sure to follow us on our social networks by searching Hope Church LV.